Our passage tonight is John 21. John 21. And let us come in prayer. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead us. Let us bring us, let them bring us to your holy hill and to your dwelling and to yourself, we pray. Amen. John chapter 21, let's read the text and get it in front of us. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in a boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land... They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lamb. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had 
leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Well, this is a very familiar passage, and any number of you have probably preached on it uh, more than once, perhaps. Uh, There are some things that we simply don't need to touch on. The 153 fish, for example. That's not code for the Trinity in any way. (laughs) There were 153 fish. Uh, They counted them. That's how they know. Um... You might say, do you know that there are two different Greek verbs for love? Yeah, I know that. Um, I'm not sure it's significant. I think they might be used synonymously, basically. Do you know that there are three Greek words for fish in here? You can do with that whatever you want. Or you can get critical matters, you know. It looks like at the end of chapter 20 that it kind of wraps up the Gospel of John, and then you have this chapter after it. And so some scholars and critics say, ah, it wasn't original, but all the, every extent, uh, extent manuscript that we have has chapter 21, so no problem about it being original. So there's a lot of stuff we don't have to mess with here. Uh, Here's what the main matter is. At the Lord's breakfast, he teaches his servants what they must have for ministry in his name. Resurrection ministry. So let's try to rip this apart a little bit. Notice, first of all, the presupposition of resurrection ministry, verses 1 and 14. The presupposition of resurrection ministry. You notice that two times in verse 1, you've got that verb, uh, phanero'o. Jesus revealed himself or disclosed himself again, uh, and he revealed himself in this way. And then when wrapping up that scenario in verse 14, you have the passive verb, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed or disclosed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Certainly, whatever was revealed or revealed himself means, it means that in his resurrection body, Jesus disclosed himself to Uh, the disciples. It may mean more than that. It may mean that he even disclosed something about himself as the risen Lord, but he at least disclosed himself in his resurrection body, in his resurrection uh, state. He's disclosed as the resurrected one. 
And John really cares about a real resurrection. We go back in chapter 20, right before this, you see all that uh, uh, concern about the, the grave clothes in, in uh, verse, chapter 20, verses about 5 to 8 and so on. Well, that shows you that there was no messing around going on at the tomb. Uh, anybody had stolen the body, they would take in the whole kit and caboodle. They wouldn't bother to leave the, unwrap the grave clothes and so on. So, and then uh, Jesus uh, shows them uh, down about verse 20, his hands and his side, and he challenges Thomas in verse 27 to put his hand in his side. And so it's just crassly, uh, fleshly. Uh, a real resurrection. John really cares about that. And, and so you see that here. Jesus in his resurrected uh, body revealing himself as the resurrected one. And that's important because there is no resurrection ministry without a resurrection. Uh, I know uh, that seems fairly obvious, but sometimes the obvious isn't noticed. I have a friend in Mississippi, um, a former deacon in one of our congregations that told me a story uh, some time ago. There were a couple of them who were deacons in the congregation, and they were overhauling a mower. I think it was a riding mower and so on. And they had torn that thing down and apart and put it back together, and they cleaned up everything from the carburetor, sharpening the blades, a whole overhaul and so on. And then they tried to start it, and it wouldn't start. Boy, they were mad, as deacons can get. Uh, and and um, frustrated. I mean, they'd done everything. And then uh, this one deacon's wife uh, hollered out and uh, discovered the problem. She said, well, do you, do you have gasoline in it? Oh, of course, you know. Uh, what do you think? We're ignoramuses or something that we wouldn't put gas in the, in the, in the dumb mower, etc. Well, they waited until she disappeared, and then they checked it, and they re- refueled, and uh, it started right off. But it was the obvious thing, but it was the obvious that was neglected. And sometimes uh, that can be the case here. You remember how essential the resurrection is. 1 Peter 1, how blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his massive mercy has called us to be born, has caused us to be born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if that's not in place, none of the rest matters. Uh, You cannot serve a risen Savior if your Savior hasn't risen. That's the presupposition of resurrection ministry. You just can't get around that. I read a sad thing uh, a few weeks ago uh, about uh, Adolf Harnack. Uh, He was... uh, kind of a charismatic and successful church historian and so on, Um, had his critics, of course, uh, moved away from the gospel. And and, uh, one of his critics was his father. Theodosius Harnack wrote his son and said, Our difference is not theological, but rather one which is profoundly and directly Christian. Thus... If I would ignore it, I would deny Christ. 
as he who views the resurrection as you do, is in my view no longer a Christian theologian. That's a sad thing to write to your kid, accomplished scholar that he was, and so on. You might say, well, why mess with that? This is twin likes. You're preaching to the choir. The point is, choirs need to be preached to. Let me ask you some questions. You realize it's in our circles where, oddly enough, people like to toy with the essentials of the faith. In what circles but reform circles did the whole matter of uh, justification come up? And the concern and the dispute over justification that involves the imputation of Christ's righteousness. What circles did that arise in? Or broaden it out to the more evangelical fold. What circles was it where we had the dispute about the immutability of God and open theism? Um, And uh, if we're so safe then why is the historicity of Adam being disputed in whose circles? Our circles. You don't think that at some point the bodily resurrection of Jesus might be questioned among our sort? I hope not, but I wouldn't be surprised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless And so is your faith. That's the presupposition of resurrection ministry. You have a Savior who's really risen. Now, number two, let's notice the ingredients of resurrection ministry. And for those of you who are concerned about time and so on, this this point is the longest of of the points tonight. So you can relax, you know, a little bit. Uh, and so on. But I want to deal with a little bit. This is, this is verses 3 to 23, all right? And here, uh, what I mean by the ingredients of resurrection ministry, uh, what, what his disciples must have for ministry in his name. What do they need? What are the ingredients? And I think you see them here. One of them is an essential presence, verses 1 to 14, or 3 to 14. An essential presence. Now, uh, here, I wonder if Jesus just disclosed himself to them as risen in his resurrection body and so on, or if he disclosed himself as risen and also disclosed something about himself as the risen one. And I think maybe that may be true too. He was getting something across to them, and you know, he, I'm not going to go into this in a lot of detail, but they. They were out uh, fishing. They decided to go out fishing and so on. And, and uh, he shows them here how indispensable he is. You may say, well, that's simplistic, Davis. I can't help it. I think it's the point of the text. Um, they were skilled. They were experienced. They had done this before. They were fishing at the optimum time in the night and so on. And it was all futile. They didn't get anything, and so Jesus says, you know, cast it on the right side, and they, they uh, took in this huge uh, uh, haul of fish, and so on. So, what's, 
What's going on there? What's the significance of it? That's just an acted parable, you might say. I'm not saying when I say parable that it didn't actually happen. And so on. It's, a, it's kind of an acted parable of the difference Jesus makes. It's John 15, 5 in living color. Without me, you can do nothing. But sometimes it grabs you a little bit more when it's in terms of fish. So there you are. Um, that's what he's trying to get across to them. You must have, you must have, an, there's an essential presence. If I'm not in your ministry, if I'm not in your work, there won't be anything but futility. Uh, there was a um, uh, baseball player, Lou Novikoff, um, in the early 1940s. Now, I, I usually, uh, we've had several baseball analogies. I usually, this usually doesn't happen like this. Uh, maybe one, but usually not several. It's just that it's like Aaron's calf. It just came out that way. And, and um, that's all. Um, but uh, Lou Novikov was known as the Mad Russian. Um, he was um, uh, in, in uh, the Pacific Coast League, I think it was, in the minors. And um, he, he uh, became very superstitious. Uh, he insisted that his wife, Esther, taunt him from the stands. Now, um, he claimed that her shouts of derision inspired him. Okay? So, uh, it began out there in the Pacific Coast League, and uh, Esther was sitting in a box seat behind home plate, and Lou uh, steps into the batter's box, and Esther hollered out, you big bum, you can't hit. And uh, Novikov's ears uh, turned red and so on. And uh, he swung on the first pitch and hit it over the left field wall for a home run. Uh, so later when fans asked Esther why she uh, shouted such nasty stuff to her husband, uh, she said, I yell at him uh, to make him mad. And when he gets mad, he gets hits. All right. So... Uh, she continued to berate him all that season, and uh, he, won, he won the batting title in the American Association batting title. Well, you win the batting title in the minor league and so on, and, and uh, you go up to the bigs. And uh, so he goes up to the Chicago Cubs and so on, and uh, of course Esther and the family and so on have to stay in the West Coast, and he's there in Chicago in 1941, and and uh, hits a very lackluster 241 average for the year. Not very inspiring. Next year, though, 1942, Lou steps into the batter's box on opening day at Wrigley Field for the season opener. And a female voice piercingly rises from the box seat, Strike the big bum out! He can't hit! It was his loving Esther. <laughs> and uh, Lou smacked a single. Uh, he went on to bat 300 that year, thanks to Esther. Uh, well, that's a little bit maybe why, but he had to have Esther's derision in order. That was the way it seemed to be. There's something essential, too, for us that we just have to have. It's the essential presence of Jesus in our work. And you might say, well, Davis, uh, okay, a very nice thought. 
but I have to stress it because uh, I know that you can do things without Jesus in your ministry. You can study Scripture without Jesus. Because, you see, we have these procedures and techniques that we use in exegeting Scripture, and we have resources that we use, and so on. And you can jump into those and not even seek the help of the Lord, and you end up coming to yourself in the middle of it, and you realize, you know, I'm just doing this like a pagan. I haven't even sought the Lord's face about this. It's as if I have all the tools I need, and I'm not putting that stuff down. I think you study Scripture without Jesus, and I've decided, I, I, I've, I, I know that you can go preaching without Jesus, and you can go hospital calling without Jesus, and um, I, I know that you can plan worship Without Jesus, there's an essential presence. That's the first matter ingredient. Okay, now, then there's the second ingredient, a cautious love. And there you have verses 15 to 17, very familiar. You've probably scrutinized that any number of times. It's interesting, uh, as, as Jesus asked P- Peter that question, do you love me more than these? Um, Who has the right to ask a question like that? That's sheer arrogance. Unless you're somebody who has the right to ask ask that kind of a question. Uh, I want us to look at that question. Notice it's a radical question for one thing. Do you love me more than these? We'll get to the more than these in a minute. But do you love me? By radical question, I mean it goes to the root of things, radical in that sense. And this does that. Uh, Leon Morris makes the comment that Jesus doesn't ask Peter if he has great gifts. He asks something more basic. Where we can extend that, he doesn't ask him if he has about his leadership abilities or about his skill in preaching or whether he's had courses in conflict management or whether, whether he's had sufficient internship experience or whether he understands uh, community demographics or, or something like that. But do you love me? It's a radical question. It goes to the root of things. There, uh, a book Steve justly recommended to me once... Um, I think it's called Preaching That Connects by Golly and Larson. And there's a story in there uh, about some writer. I don't know who it was, but some apparently accomplished literary figure of some success or note who was speaking at a conference and there was um, at a university, I think. And uh, during one of the breaks, a student came up to the writer. I don't know if it was a he or she. Um, asked the writer, do you think I could become a writer? Well, I mean, you don't know this person from Adam or Eve. I mean, you don't know anything about that. And he's asking you, do you think I can become a writer? So what do you say? Well, the writer said, well, I don't know. Do you like sentences? You can kind of see people processing things. You you can see the wheels kind of turning and grinding a little bit. 
here's this 20-year-old fella, and he's saying probably inside himself, I'm 20 years old. And this person is asking me if I like sentences. But then the comment in the story was, if he had liked sentences, then he could have begun. It's, it's that basic. It's down to that level. Uh, and that's the way it is with this. Do you love me? Uh, now, that doesn't downplay the doctrinal commitment that we spoke of in the first main point. But there's such a thing as doctrinal commitment, and there's also such a thing as devotional commitment, and they have to go together. So, it's a radical question. I think we also ought to notice, though, that it's a painful question. You realize that. Uh, in a couple of ways, for one thing, the first uh, form of the question that Jesus asked him is, do you love me more than these? Now, you'll probably differ. I, I take more than these as meaning more than these other disciples love me. Uh, some people would say, oh, it's more than this fishing gear and your old life or something like that. I, I think from Mark 14, you remember that Jesus, uh, Peter had said to Jesus, uh, though all may fall away, yet I will not. I think that's what's behind the more than these. Because what was Peter saying there? Well, he wouldn't put it in these words, but he was really saying something like, my commitment is deeper and stronger than these other disciples. And uh, so that, I think that's probably behind this. I think it, he's comparing, Jesus is asking, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? And Peter, you notice, doesn't answer that part of the question. He leaves the comparison out. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. That's, that's it. There's a certain caution that's, been cre- that's crept in to Peter's uh, affirmations here. And then, of course, uh, when you see the third question, and he's, he's asked the third time, it obviously conjures up the memory of the three denials and so on. And, and uh, so, again, uh, Peter has it, uh, uh, says, Lord, you know all things. That's really an affirmation of deity, it seems. Uh, you, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he leaves it in Jesus' basket. He leaves it in Jesus' lap. Um, and so on. But, but uh, it's, he's affirming his love. He's not comparing that love with, with others and so on. There's a certain caution about this. He doesn't speak about how deep his emotions are or how intense his feelings are. You know that I love you. Okay. Now, Jesus had brought him, I think, where he wanted him. To a realistic estimate of himself. And that's not bad. He had made him cautious. Richard Buse, who's... uh, I think followed John Stott at uh, uh, Langham Place and so on, was uh, told once about the process involved when he was ordained. 
Now I know what you may think. Well, that was an Anglican. And, uh, just don't go there. Uh, but, but, but Buse said that when he was ordained and when he was asked the question at his ceremony whether he felt called by God to this position, he said, my answer was required to be, I think so. Well, you don't do that at a ceremony that's public, and I think so. No, no, that was what was required to be. And he's, he repeated it, and then he said, nothing more definite after all the training and study that's been involved, after every check and balance has been brought to bear upon the candidate, after the bevy of advisors and clergy and, and evaluators and assessors that have looked me I think so, you know, almost mocks you. That's pretty good, though. I think that's pretty good. I think so that I think so is pretty good. Uh, That's a proper kind of reserve and caution. There are times, and you may think this heretical, Uh, This doesn't come out of the text. It's an attempt to apply the text. But there are times, I think, when I can't or shouldn't sing, I surrender all. And there are times when I don't want to sing all the stanzas of my Jesus, I love thee, because I think it might be saying too much at that time. There's times when there needs to be more caution and less flippancy in our vocalizing our commitments. And Peter had come to a cautious love by this painful question of Jesus. Now, there's one other aspect, of course, of this question besides being radical and painful. Uh, there's also the fact that it's a personal question. By that I mean it's not just merely a matter of Peter over breakfast at the Sea of Galilee and this is his problem or his dilemma. You can't help but get sucked into the text, can you? You know, in a sense, it's your question as well. It's a personal question. Um, Henry Alexander White wrote that book, uh, Southern Presbyterian Leaders, Uh, And uh, at a point, he was talking about uh, James Waddell. Uh, Dr. Waddell preached, uh, I think he was from North Carolina, but he ended up, I think, it was in Virginia a good bit. And um, he was preaching on one occasion. This would be about, if I remember correctly, about the 1760s, so pre-revolution. Dr. Waddell was preaching... And uh, there were a number of sailors present in the church. And he was preaching from the words, his text was, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me? And some of the sailors were moved to tears by the appeals of the preacher. And at one point in his discourse, Dr. Waddell apparently did what he sometimes did. He repeated uh, the question. He said, and what does Peter say? kind of a rhetorical uh, affair. And then an old sailor whose name was Peter 
arose from his seat in the congregation and with tears streaming down his cheeks made the answer, Lord, thou knowest all things, thou knowest that I love thee. It was a personal question. It's that way for us as well. All of this to say, get at that ingredient of a cautious love. Now, there's one other. We've got an essential presence. We've got a cautious love. And there's one other ingredient, a holy indifference, verses 18 to 23. Uh, In other words, there needs to be a godly apathy about your ministry. By that, I mean this episode here at the end as as, uh, Jesus uh, tells Peter, Uh, that uh, he's not going to be running the show himself. Uh, He's going to have other people doing things to him, and indeed uh, he would give his life for his Savior. Uh, Verse 18, John says in verse 19, was showing what kind of death, by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. All right? Uh, then uh, they're going along. He says, follow me. And Jesus and Peter are apparently walking along. And Peter turns around and sees um, John following. Well, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which I think is John's way of referring to himself in the fourth gospel. I don't need to go into the deals. I don't think that's an, an arrogant thing. Why does he call himself the disciple that Jesus loved? Does he think Jesus loves him more than the other disciples? I don't think so. I don't think it's a matter of one-upmanship. I think it's a wonder, a matter of wonder. <laughs> I'm the disciple Jesus loved. He's never gotten over it. And that's the way he refers to himself. So here's John. We'll just call him John, all right? Here's John coming along apparently uh, behind somewhere. And Peter says, well, what about this fellow? And you remember Jesus says, if I want to remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And then John has to correct the misconception that some of the believers got over Jesus' statement and that sort of thing. But the point there is, it all rests on the sovereignty of Jesus' will. And Peter, you need to have a holy indifference about what about John? That's not your concern. Don't sweat it. It's one place where apathy is godly. Go for it. Um, so that's the, the, the uh, stress here. Now, uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that that's the way Jesus operates so often. He has different plans for different servants. And lots of times we don't seem to get that point. Uh, one of the things that impressed me is just uh, reading Uh, Some of the accounts during the killing times in Scotland in the 1680s. Some of you probably remember the uh, time when John Brown of Priesthill uh, was uh, coming back to his cottage in Claver House and the Dragoons caught up with him there. And in front of his wife Isabel and their bairns, uh, Claver House after a little deliberation and allowing Brown to pray and so on, uh, blew his brains all over the place with his pistol and so on, uh, and then asked his wife what she thought of her teacher now. Well, that was John Brown of Priesthill, and that's what happened to him in 1684. 
But on the other hand, you have somebody like John Welsh, who was the great-grandson of John Knox, and uh, he was ejected from his pulpit in 1662, and uh, he would come back, uh, nevertheless, have field meetings. He would come back into his own community and preach among his own people as much as once a week sometimes. Sometimes he might be away for a while. He would come back and he would baptize the children and so on in his old parish. And then uh, there was a price of 500 pounds set on his head and so on. They were searching for him. But he would be preaching on the mountains of Scotland many times to a number of thousands for nearly 20 years and was always kept out of the enemy's hands. They would be hot on his tail, but they never caught up to him. Uh, One fellow said, I've known Mr. Welsh ride three days and two nights without sleep and preach upon a mountain at midnight on one of the nights and so on. Of 20 years of that, and he dies in his bed in London in January of 1681. What about this man? Well, it's kind of different from John Brown. Uh, Why the difference? If I will. Uh, Jesus has different plans uh, for different servants. You see, the focus of Jesus' command there, you, he said to Peter, follow me. Both, both pronouns are emphatic in the text. In other words, Peter, there's lots not to worry about. And we need that word, I think. Someone else's trials and disasters are not as severe as mine. Someone else has gifts that I don't have. Someone else has more visible success in ministry. What is that to you? Follow me. If you're following Jesus, he's always ahead of you. And wherever he takes you, he's always there. But just don't worry your head about John. So those are the ingredients of Resurrection ministry. Now, I want us to notice one more matter. Uh, Thirdly, the grandeur of resurrection ministry. The grandeur of resurrection ministry. Verse 25. Now, there are also also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Murray Harris, in his treatment of John's gospel, his grammatical treatment of it, calls this Verse, the grandeur of Jesus' life. You read that and you say, is this pious exaggeration? Well, look at it. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Someone, of course, with a seminary degree will intone, yes, it is hyperbole. Uh, And, uh, of course, it is. Because hyperbole is the only device that will begin to convey the truth of Jesus' splendor. You're reduced to that if you want to get any sense of it. It says something about the subject of our ministry, doesn't it? It says there's something inexhaustible about Jesus. That in Jesus, you meet more and you have more 
than you ever imagined. Now, during the war between the states, there was that time, I think in late 1863, when the, uh, the Army of the Cumberland had been kind of disgraced and so on. And uh, Grant ordered some of them, the, the Confederates, remember, were on Missionary Ridge there near Chattanooga and holding the high ground there. And Grant, I think, had ordered uh, some of the troops to take the rifle pits at the base of Missionary Ridge. Well, they, they, uh, they did that. Uh, but uh, then they kept going. Uh, they, they started to scale the slope of, of Missionary Ridge. The Confederate cannon were on the top and so on. They held that. They couldn't depress their guns enough to knock the guys off the slope and so on. So they just kept coming. And the officers uh, had, had, had told them not to, but they, the, the officers that were on the scene told them not to, but, the, but they just kept going. And so since the officers weren't obeyed, the officers followed their men and they, they started up too. Uh, Grant turns to General Thomas, who didn't like, and he said, did you order those guys to do that? And he said, no. Um, but apparently it was something that they decided they had to redeem themselves, and they did it. And they ran, uh, long story short, ran the Confederates off the top of Missionary Ridge. They were probably so shocked and, and taken by surprise that they vamoosed, etc., uh, all of that to say, not because you guys like General Grant or anything like that, but Grant got far more than he expected and far more than he ordered at Missionary Ridge. That's what you find in Jesus. You get far more than you ever imagined. That's the grandeur of resurrection ministry. Haven't you, really, even you, haven't you found it to be so? You're exegeting your text in your study. And as you brush heads with hithiel imperfects, or maybe with aorist subjunctives, Suddenly you see a splash of his splendor. You get a glimpse of his glory that you'd never seen before. And your head goes down on your desk in adoration and praise and thanksgiving. Not so that you can tell your congregation about the marvelous experience you had in your study. Just shut up about it. No one needs to know. Accept your Lord. You don't need a reputation as a profound mystic. But you keep running into proofs that Jesus is far more than even all your orthodoxy ever imagined him to be. And that's the grandeur of resurrection ministry. Because that's the grandeur of your Savior. Let us pray. How indispensable you are, our Lord, to any service we would render. How unrelenting you are 
in seeking our love and how inexhaustible you are in your fullness and how worthy you are of the best that unprofitable servants can offer you. Amen.